Lord, we thank you so much for this beautiful day. Praise you. Like I'm praying again. I love you so much. We pray done. Praise you for who you are and what you have done through our lives, that you have saved us through Christ's work on the cross. By no merit of our own, but only through Christ's work. As Martin Luther, who read from Romans 3.21, and he read that it was through faith one is justified and considered righteous, not by works, but by faith in Christ Jesus alone. Foiled and, 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 and struggled and, and over every little sin of his life and thinking that he had to be perfect to experience your righteousness and your grace and for all of us Lord that we are righteous in your eyes because of what Christ has done not the Lord Lord I pray for friendship in this room I know that in many groups of people there could be uh, fracturing relationships there could be things that were said or things that were done that caused division Lord but may we remember what we are in Christ that little conflicts that we have is so insignificant in compared to the eternal hope that we have. We will experience eternity with brothers and sisters in the presence of you forever. And the little things that we had, the little divisions that we had were so insignificant. Too often church, Lord, and Christians bicker and, and complain and have conflict between each other. When we are saved... And our future is eternal. So why should we worry about such little things? But I pray, Lord, that you would give us understanding. You would give us perspective, Lord, that is eternal. Lord, I pray for those who couldn't be here for whatever reason. It be sickness or traveling. Um, Lord, I pray that you would keep them safe. Bring healing to their body, Lord. I pray that you would bring them back this week. We can worship with them together. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're back in the book of Luke, um, but I did really enjoy spending a few weeks talking about the Reformation. Hopefully it was um, something that was valuable to you and something that you um, thought was, something that you maybe didn't know came from the Reformation. Uh, those of you get to watch the documentary, hopefully that was, uh, that was that was something that was helpful in understanding the history a little bit, Reformation and Martin Luther. Um, if you did not get to see that, like to watch it, call me up sometime, or we I could get you some way and buy it all. Um, but I would encourage you to watch it. Blessed by it, very well done. Um, we, so we're back in the Book of Luke as read, and we're in chapter one. To kind of uh, talk about the, uh, Luke's historical account, life of Christ, and I want to kind of the title of our of our past of our message is Nazareth, Isolation, and Spring, Unconventional God. Why I mentioned those that birthplace of great people, great men and women, usually typically don't happen or take place that you would think or areas be the place where great leaders born. Um, just a few examples. You know, think of King David. David 
the youngest of eight brothers, the least likely to have the physical attribute to be king, shepherd boy. But yet, God expects him to be the next Israel. Martin Luther, born in Weisleben, which was a mining town in the central region of Germany, it wasn't in Berlin, it wasn't in the major city of Germany, it wasn't in the major cities of Europe, not Paris, not Rome, not, not London or any of these other cities, but a mining town. His father was a miner. He wasn't someone born into royalty. He wasn't someone who was born into an academic family. Yet God chose him and used him to start his reformation. Even Charles Spurgeon, his first church that he pastored was a small church in the village of Water Beach near Cambridge. It wasn't in Oxford, it wasn't in Cambridge, it wasn't in London, it wasn't in some major city of England, it was a small village outside Cambridge. Even Billy Graham was ordained in a small, I got a picture of actually, a small country church in Florida. Tiny little church where Billy Graham was ordained. Not in the, some big church in Dallas, not some big church in Atlanta, not some church in New York or Chicago or Los Angeles, some other major city in the United States the 20th century, but this little podunk church even Abraham Lincoln was in 1809 in Sinking Springs, Kentucky, near Hodgenville, Kentucky, which was not even incorporated as a city with the state assembly until 1836. So simply, basically, Abraham Lincoln was born in the middle of nowhere in a farm connected to this little starting little city that wasn't even an actual city yet in Kentucky. None of these great men came from places that you would assume leaders would come from. Not the great families of academia or great industries or wealth. Some of these pastors and interns at these great palaces, like that. They were not born into a great family. God basically plucked them from a pretty and used them to glorify himself. Context we have here, this the second story talking about uh, foretelling of a birth. The first one is obviously about John the Baptist, and now we get to the birth. We've already kind of talked about kind of the uh, things that God is doing. He is uh, basically Elizabeth was old and barren, and now she is giving a Baptist as miraculous. And so much as Zechariah the priest was dumbfounded and asked, well, how could this happen? His wife is so old, and he was good because of his lack of faith. So now we have the birth of Jesus. So the first point is poor virgin. The main idea, yeah, poor virgin. The main idea is God obscure will. So a poor virgin in Nazareth coming from, again, chapter 1. Starting in verse 26. So talking about in verse 26, we see that in the sixth month, Luke tells, Luke tells us in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Basically, sixth month here, because referring back to Elizabeth, basically Elizabeth is six months pregnant. Help us to connect this story from the last story. The same angel Gabriel came to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Nazareth was basically a, a village 
small town. Not Jerusalem, not some religious city time, not Rome, but a small village, Galilee, a virgin. So we already have this idea. Why would he put in here a virgin? Why would he, well, why is that information important? Well, obviously, we, in, in the story before, we get Elizabeth with Baron. Now we have a virgin. So this is an interesting story. This is a very uniqueness. There's nothing in Greek philosophy or mythology or Jewish, any Jewish parallels of a virgin having a child. This was a new thing. This was completely unique. Nothing in the past in, in Egyptian or Greek, are there, are there any parallels of a virgin who has given a child? This is an extremely unique situation. Even when we talk about Hercules, Hercules uh, impregnated a you know, uh, I mean, Hercules' mother, but she wasn't a virgin. This was a very unique aspect of the story was that woman that Gabriel goes to is a virgin. The idea that the early Christians created this miraculous nature of Christ's birth is baseless. There is no, there's no parallels of anything and in, in any type of uh, other cultural literature that says that it is, Common, or that there was a time where some great person came from a virgin birth. The idea that clearly Christians would have up is doesn't seem like there's any parallels of that. There was no no known equivalent than virgin birth. The first century would have been just as shocked Mary is here. Jesus Messiah birth unique. It's unique from the first century, and it says that not only. Uh, we see this in verse 27, that this virgin was betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. Joseph, the house of David, was betrothed with basically engaged to this uh, man, Joseph. And it helps us to understand why it's so important that we see this attribute of, of birth of the house of David, this idea, this covenantal nature of Christ's birth. It goes back to this is 17 verse 6, talking about kings shall come from the lineage of Abraham. And, and so that Jesus is a fulfillment and in the sense that he's a part of that covenant. Also in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 15, uh, God tells King David, your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Jesus, this birth, while also being miraculous because it's a virgin birth, it's also covenantal. It also is filming Old Testament prophets of the covenant of Abraham and also the covenant of David. This birth is extremely important. This birth is very significant, not only because it's miraculous, but also because it's fulfilling God's promise. And then Gabriel says something interesting to her in verse 28. He says, Gabriel came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. God places his favor on a poor virgin girl from Nazareth. His undeserving grace is focused on her. Now, this is the epicenter of a lot of Catholic Protestant agreement. Because Catholics would see that in this passage, especially in verse 28, it doesn't say old favored one, it says full of grace. Then in the sense that she is the mother of God, therefore she is a new Eve, therefore she is free from all sin, and has never sinned, not before nor after. She 
He was one who never sinned, therefore she fit bear Christ. But that's not what Gabriel's saying to her. She, he is saying to her that God has graciously looked upon you. God has favored you. God has placed his gaze upon you and calling you to predict your tasks. Mary is just as dumbfounded by Gabriel's words. Shocked that Gabriel, uh, God would send a messenger to her. Why would God favor her? Why would God send his angel to her? If she was without sin, if she was uh, this person who was perfect out and also had been born in a miraculous way, wouldn't she not have been dumbfounded by Gabriel? She's a poor girl who lives in Nazareth. She's far from Jerusalem. She's not a priest, but a poor girl who has no status, no identity, no wealth. She lives in obscurity. Nothing happens in Nazareth. Nothing happens. It's important. You know, I, when, I, when I thought of that, you even think about in John chapter 1, when, you know, Philip basically, what, what, or I guess, you know, what good ever happened in Nazareth? And this Podong village is where this worker lives. Makes me think of like, and one of my favorite shows, uh, Park Trek, is like this Pawnee, Indiana, this like obscure little town that nothing important happens. You know, one of their... Uh, one of their slogans towards the end of the series was first friendship, fourth and obesity. Like that was the like slogan that they put under like welcome to Pawnee. You, saw, you always would see that like in Nazareth. You see the sign, Nation 100, you know, and uh, that's basically this village that Gabriel. It helps us understand here the unformalitic nature of God. That God doesn't, does not what we sometimes expect. You think even Job, like, it's an interesting story, isn't it? When you've read it, when you've studied it, why does God do that, Job? Job, and maybe his friends are going, Job, you obviously have committed sin. Obviously, you're receiving judgment from God. And Job's like, but I've done nothing wrong. I am blameless in this. I've done nothing to deserve God's judgment upon me. And at the end of the story, there isn't anything he's done, really, to experience or to receive all this for God. God just does it because God's not a formula. You can't just assume or expect God's going to work in a certain way. And this story helps us understand that, that God's nature is unformalitic. Think of Abraham. Why does God pick Abraham to be the, uh, the father of his nation? There is no reason. He just decides. Or even Israel, the nation. Why does he save Israel from Exodus? Well, he promised Abraham. Well, why Israel? Why does he pick that nation? Or even David, as I said before, why does he pick him to be his? God does what he can't place God in a formula to determine what or why God does what he does. He is independent of your expectations. Your good, your religious does not determine God's will for your life. It's important for us to understand that, well, I've given everything, I've given 10% of my tithe every week, I go to church every week, I do everything I'm supposed to. Therefore, God, you're supposed to do this. That makes that paganism because you think you can do what you just do things for god and god then therefore has to time. what does first corinthians 1 27 29 say god chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise god chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong god chose what is low and despised in the world so that no human being may boast in the presence of god i 
God chose an obscure monk whose father was a minor from Eisenblaben to reform his church. That doesn't make any sense. God chose a backwater lawyer from Kentucky to free the American slave. Why? Charles Spurgeon, Billy Graham, all these great people that God has done great work for, he just picked from purity that he would be blessed, that he would be glorified and boasted. God chose a poor girl from Nazareth to carry his eternal son. Here is the reason so no one may boast, that no one may doubt that God did it. Obviously, God did it because no one would choose a C-level college student from USI to bring the gospel for the first time to a tribe in Papua or a college student Cairo Egypt the gospel. Well, obviously, it's the person who 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 is always at church early and always served and always did this and always did that. Those are the people that God chose and sent out to do his work. But typically what happens is he picks the people we would never expect to go and do his work. Obviously God did it because no one would choose to stay at home to start a ministry they served and discipled. God does amazing things And we think about God's work and we have to ask the question, why did this work? Why did this happen? How did this come to be? And the only conclusion is, is obviously God did it. Obviously God did it because no one would choose a guy who struggles to speak well to be a catalyst for gospel. Obviously God did it because no one would choose a stay-at-home mom to start a ministry that served and discipled single moms in the gospel of Christ. No one would choose those people. Obviously, God did it. We're so good at assuming God could never work through me because whatever, or God could never work through them because of whatever. Yet the Bible repeatedly and repeatedly says God does unexpected. I believe the next group of leaders in the church will come to church like this. Not because this church is any greater than any other But God does the unknowable. He does the, the most surprising thing. He picks people from the smallest little church. He catalyst for great growth, great spiritual, uh, a great spiritual ca- uh, catalyst for his church. The next Billy Graham may be come from in this room. The next Martin Luther may be in this room. The next John Piper may be in this room. The next Elizabeth Elliot in this room. I think we have to think that, that God doesn't do what we expect. He doesn't just pick the guy who's the associate pastor at the, the biggest church in town and say, oh, that's the guy who's going to do this, and that guy's going to do that. Most of the time, that ends up not being so, that God picks the most surprising people to do his great work, and it may be one of you. The second point is the greatness of the son born into purity greatness of the son born into purity. We, we see that in the story that, um, that Jesus is conceived in Mary's womb. I think those are important little points that you have to catch, that this isn't some dork moment that he kind of dropped off by a big bird. Like, it's not a Dumbo moment. This is something that actually physically happened, that Jesus, the son of God, did, conceived and was born. Jesus was literally born just like you and me. He was fully human. That song, I can't remember if it was Away in the Manger, the whole, like, no crying he made. It's just so obscure. I mean, so 
ludicrous that Jesus wouldn't cry. This idea that Jesus didn't experience the full human experience is absurd. Jesus was fully human. He was born. He cried. They called his name Jesus. Like Abraham was given the name from Abram, like Israel, from Jacob, a name given by God himself. Jesus is the, 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 it comes from the Hebrew name of Joshua. The Lord is salvation. And who is this Jesus? Well, he gives us five descriptions of who Jesus is. He will be great, it says. Verse 32, he'll be great. John the Baptist in verse 15 was said he would be great, but Jesus is greater than John the Baptist. Is John the Baptist only great in the sight of God? Yet Jesus was greater than John. He will be greater than anyone who has come before him, greater than Alexander the Great, greater than Julius Caesar. His nature and his being, there is no blemish in Christ. If you think of the great men of history, there's always blemishes. I mean, George Washington, he owns slaves, right? You can't really work that out. I mean, you go, well, yeah, he owns slaves. And say that's like a good thing. He owns slaves. That's a bad thing. He did great things. Founding father. He was the president of the United States. But he owned slaves. He of Christopher Columbus. Yes, he sailed sea and, and, and came to the new world. But known stories of his brutality towards the indigenous people there. Every, there's blemishes of all great men and women. But Jesus has no blemish. He's blameless, good. And he's called the son of the most high. His qualifying statement of his greatness, which distinguishes him from all others, there's no other that is called son of the most high. He is the son of God, the eternal son of God. Matthew 27, 54, he was the son of God. This is what the centurion, the Roman soldiers, say to the cross, truly he was the son of God. His sonship qualified him to be the Christ, the Messiah. We tend to get to say, well, he was the Messiah because he was he is the Christ, the Messiah, the, the Savior of the world because of his sonship, because of his, because he is the son of the most high God. His people, his citizens are the ones who bow to the crucified and resurrected king. Not only is he the Savior of the world, not only is he the most high God, but he, is gonna, he will, will uh, be given the throne of his father, David. He's the heir of the throne of David, the king of God's people. He will earn his throne. He will earn his position. It's not something that he never had to earn to get. You think of one of the greatest little examples of Jesus and how this kind of fits is, is when he is tempted by Satan. You know the time when he takes him to the top of his highest mountains, all the kingdom of the world, and Satan says, you can do all these things if you bow towards me. What does Jesus do? He, he doesn't bow and worship Satan because he is the king of all the known kingdoms. But how does he, what is his avenue or pathway to that kingdom? Christ's throne, his position, his status will be earned through the cross. And his people will look to him as their king, put their faith in the one crucified, one who's thrown with a Roman cross. That is the king that brings salvation. And he reigns over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will have no end. He has an everlasting dominion, Daniel 7, 13 through 14, an everlasting kingdom. Not like Rome, not like the kingdoms of the world, not like the kingdom of America or the kingdoms of Europe or the kingdoms of whatever or China, of all these different nations who have all these empires and these strong 
thinking that their, that their, their kingdom and their rule will last forever. It will not last forever. Only Christ's kingdom will last forever. The kingdom established by the one who's born in Bethlehem and raised in Nazareth will have an everlasting kingdom. Too often, we as churches are scared about what goes on around us. We're scared of whatever, terrorism. We're scared about who's going to be the next president. We're scared about whatever, whatever, whatever. And, and forgetting that our great king and Lord is an everlasting king, that he is the, the son of the most high God, that he is the most unique person to ever exist in human history. That should empower us to give us boldness and confidence that our king is kingdom will never end. Nothing will conquer him. Nothing will kick him off this throne. And that we should say the words, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone to believe to first and also to the Greek. Too often we're ashamed that we're Christians or we're ashamed that we are followers of Christ. But why would you be ashamed as a citizen of the great king or the citizen of his great kingdom whose throne is the cross, who conquered death? Why would you be afraid of anything in this world? The society and the economy and politics, where's the means for peace, equality, justice? and fairness in these things. The gospel of the kingdom of the Son of the Most High God is the ethical and moral framework your neighbors, your peers, your friends, your co-workers need to give hope. Because they look at the economy, they look at politics, they look at society, they see people driving home depot trucks, running down bike lanes and rocking people over and killing them, and they go, where is there any chance, where is there any chance of hope? The world's falling apart. And we kind of go, I don't know. Tragic, I guess. Sad. Not understanding that the moral and ethical framework of Christ's kingdom is the only framework people have for hope. It's the only framework people have for It's the only framework people have for, for equality and justice. The king of kings is on the throne and his kingdom will never be. Never be. the logic of the gospel, the logic of the gospel. I love Mary's question. She's like, I want this key. I'm a virgin. I mean, like, I'm, it's an honest question. Like, any of us would have asked it, like, well, hold on a second. You're missing the point here. I'm a virgin. How is this going to work? i with a man. I mean, I'm engaged to a man, but we're not married yet. Therefore, how is this going to work? I wouldn't even be able to ask the question. I'd be so dumbfounded and so just like shaking. Number one, there's an angel in front of me. Second thing, uh, he's talking to me. And he also said that I'm going to be the, the mother of the most high God's son. I mean, that would probably put us in, a, in an interesting situation, an interesting state. I would have a hard time getting the words out. Yet she asked this question. And what does Gabriel say? Verse 35, and the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, okay? And the power of the Most High will be overshadow you, okay? For the child born will be called Holy, Son of God. That doesn't really help. I, that's, it may be conceived by the Holy Spirit. That's new, that's unique. Um, 
I'm not really sure how that works. We have a remarkable moment here. We have this new creation moment. Jesus is not the son of Adam. He's the son of God. I mean, you get that here. I mean, he's conceived of the Holy Spirit. His father is God. He is truly the son of God. Unmasked, unmarked by the son of Adam, we have the presence of the Holy, the presence of the Holy Spirit like we had in Genesis 1-2 and Genesis 7. Sin legacy of Adam will be reversed, son of this poor virgin girl from Nazareth. Something new is happening that's never happened before. He will be born holy. Those who follow him will be made holy like him. Tax collectors will become holy men through Jesus. Murderers will become peaceful men through Jesus. Jesus brings a new era, a new age. This is the moment of the beginning of a new age in human history. People will be made new, will be made holy. This is the business his father has sent, sent him to accomplish. What does Jesus say when he's 12 years old, tells he's old in the temple to Mary and Joseph? I must be about my father's business. He was born to do what? Born to bring salvation to the world. And nothing, I love how Gable says this, nothing is impossible with God. Nothing possible with God. That is the logic of the gospel. Think, how does this virgin birth work? How does this happen? This doesn't make any sense. It's breaking the laws of nature. This is unbelievable. This can't be true. Hence why a lot of people say the virgin birth is a lie. It's a myth. It never really happened. Think of the logic of the gospel. Think of the presupposition of the gospel. The foundational belief is all is possible with God. Nothing is impossible with God. The issue of how is not an issue of God. God is involved, so all is possible. So if God can send his son into the world by miraculous supernatural birth, the womb of a virgin, girl in Nazareth, from that foundation belief that God created the universe, therefore God basically whatever he wants in his universe. If he wants to split the Red Sea, he do that. He do whatever he wants. His world, he created it. If he wants to send his son to a miraculous virgin birth, he can do that. It doesn't study logical because God created the universe. Therefore, it's possible. Nothing is possible. God. In an old, an open world system, God can enter into his world through supernatural things like the virgin birth. Therefore, the events to follow in Luke's historical account are plausible. The resurrection, the miracles, the miracles of the apostles, all of these things are logical because God can do whatever he wants in his world. In a closed system, in a closed world system, no such things as miracles happen, no such things as supernatural happen. What there is, there is, and there's no hope of anything else. Yeah, it's so hilarious. People will say that, but sports fans, in this pressure moment when they need some big play to win the game, they're praying to some God, a miracle. If you would just do this, if this guy would catch this pass, that we would win the game. They're praying for miracles. Or families pray for miracles, deathbed of a family member. They believe in an open system that God can enter into this world and do miraculous things. So nothing is impossible with God. That is the logic of the gospel. So now the last thing is the response of the gospel. This last verse here in 38 this 
the mission of Mary. She says, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Mission of, of Mary. I mean, we have to put ourselves in her shoes, okay? Not just be so disconnected from the story. We're in the first century. We're not in the 21st century. What do you think the reaction in her village is going to be when a young girl is now pregnant, but yet has never slept with her, with her betrothed husband? That's going to cause controversy. That's going to be a scandalous event. That, like, she can hide it, obviously. She's pregnant. I mean, even Joseph in verse 19, Matthew 1.19 resolved to divorce her quietly. Basically saying she was an adulteress. That she had committed adultery. What do they do to people in the first century when you do adultery? They might stone you to death. I mean, think about John chapter 8, the woman who was caught in adultery. What were they doing to her? Stoning her. So this is a huge ask here that they're at, that. That God has given this commission, this calling to Mary, and she understood quite well her position before God. She didn't complain. She didn't say, well, what about this? What about that? What about this? What about that? No, no. She submitted to the call of her God. She even understood it in her phrasing. I am the servant of the Lord. I'm not the master. I'm not an equal. I'm the servant. She does the bidding of her creator with gladness, regardless of the difficult path. Remember, Jesus comes not to live a happy, long life either. She comes to, he comes to die. And so even Mary's raising of her child, even when she is at the cross, that's her son. This is like some like, well, that's really God's son. I'm not, I was just like, I just was a surrogate, man. I wasn't a part of that. Like, she was the mother of Christ. I mean, she raised him. This is not an easy task that God has asked her to do. She died, her son dies the death of a traitor. But yet she accepts this commission and this calling with gladness and joy. We are not the masters of our life. He is the potter. We are the clay. Besides our youth, too often our response to God's call is indifference or simply, it's an option. Yeah, I can do that. Yeah, I guess I can do that. I mean, it's an option, but I got this other option over here. So, um, you know, I, you know, I don't know. I'll get back to you. But I've weighed the call acting as if we have a choice in the matter. Mary doesn't act like she has a choice in the matter. She submits the will of her father and God. He is the creator. We are the creation. Created in image to reflect him in whatever place he chooses to send us. I hope God sends some of you from here to be about his work. That'll be a sad day. Have you up here and say, oh, it's so sad that God's going to send you to Brazil or wherever to be about his work. We send you with gladness. I hope that happens. I hope that happens to many of you. If we had to close the church because God sent too many of us around the world to share the gospel, good glory to God, good praise to him for what he has done. And we must go willingly. We are created in his image to reflect him in whatever place. I hope and pray our response is somewhat buried. This is the only response to the gospel. Christ calls us to follow and bid us to come and die. Die whatever you think you need or want. To die to whatever family you believe you have to live near. Die whatever expectation you believe you must fulfill. I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me. Wouldn't we be willing to say the same thing? And I go, well, that's too far from my parents. 
or that's just way, I'm going to have to get a new job. Like that, that doesn't work in my expectation or my planning for my life. At this year, I want to do this. And at this year, I want to do that. And I want to have this. I want to have that. And God blows that stuff up. We have to be willing to say, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to the word. That is the response to the gospel. It bids us to come and die. So to conclude, kind of gotten around, it's too often, I don't know if you know this, but there's more Christians, far, 60% of Christians today do not from the West. They live in the global South. They live in Asia, Africa, um, South America. They don't live. What was so interesting about this is that God does what he wants to to his church. The epicenter of the church is not London or Louisville. I think it's Louisville. Global South. And what the Global South is us is that, yeah, you can be proper in all of your thinking and all of your doctrine. What does it mean to be empowered by God? What does it mean to be empowered by the Spirit of God? And they get excited about God. And too often, we don't get excited about God. We just think, well, we're going to think really good about him, and we're going to be all like, really tough, and, and we're going to, is that, is that theological? Is that theological? Is that theological? Is that theological? And we're not empowered. But the Spirit of God that says, you know what? I don't know if I get all this stuff at Trinity, but I know that I love Jesus, and I'm going to do whatever he calls me to do regardless. Like, I would rather have us have that attitude than the things like, well, let's make sure that we're, we're point on point on everything we do and say. We need to be a church that is empowered by the Spirit of God, who does amazing and incredible things. I mean, he miraculously brought Jesus in the world through a virgin birth. He does miraculous things. And he's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is kingdom will never fade. It will never go away. He will never be pushed off his throne. And we, as followers of that, are, are, are citizens of his kingdom. And therefore, we should say, I am a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. I will do according to your word. Whatever that is. And be empowered by that. And say, I go with boldness and confidence. Share and to live the gospel. And be empowered by that. And that the world sees us and goes, they're a little freaky. I get it, man. Like, But man, they love Jesus. And there's something to that. There's, there's something different about them. There's something that's changed that's different about that they are different than me and, and therefore I need to talk to them about Christ. I need to talk to them about what this gospel is all about. So I'm going to pray for us as we move into reflection, as we move into uh, 